Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, Executive Editor of Recode. And I'm Lauren Good, Senior Technology Editor at The Verge. And you're listening to Two Embarrassed Ass, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network. This is a show where we answer all of your embarrassing questions about consumer tech. It could be anything, like how many echoes around your house I'm going to set off right now when I say, Alexa, (laughs) because that's basically what the Amazon event was like last week when they announced six new echoes and everyone was shouting Alexa. Oh my goodness. I noticed that picture you did of the panel of guys talking about AI. That was interesting. Yes. Amazon brought out a bunch of its artificial intelligence and machine learning experts to Mm -hmm. give a little on the record panel. Mm -hmm. They all just happen to be men. Ah, white men too. All right. So send us your questions. Find us on Twitter and tweet them to at Recode or to myself or to Lauren with the hashtag Too Embarrassed. We also have an email address. It's too embarrassed at Recode.net. And a friendly reminder that Kara is no longer giving out her password because <laughs> there have been some breaches lately. In any case, it has two R's and two S's and embarrassed. All right, Lauren. So we're here this week. Speaking of breaches, why don't you explain what we're doing? Yes, we've gotten a lot of questions from our readers and listeners on today's topic. So we are going to try to keep the first part of this podcast short so we can try to get to a lot of your questions. You've all been asking. We've heard you loud and clear. So today's episode is all about the Equifax breach, which is terrible. And we're going to talk about what you need to know and what you can do about it. Yeah. In the past few weeks, we've learned about the breach itself, which would compromise the confidential information of about 143 million Americans. We learned about top executives who sold nearly $2 million in company stock days before the breach was exposed, although Equifax insists they knew nothing about the breach. And the company's CEO was forced into retirement due to the breach, as he should have been. We still haven't really heard many satisfying responses or solutions from the company other than, you know, freeze your credit or sign up for another one of our trusted ID programs, because that's exactly who you trust right now. Mm-hmm. So we brought in security expert Brian Krabs, hugely well-respected, to answer some of our questions. Brian is a well-known investigative journalist who reports on cybersecurity and cybercrime and who runs KrebsOnSecurity.com. He's known for exposing vulnerabilities and breaches long before the companies who suffer them want you to know about them. And he's been reporting on this breach extensively. Brian, thanks for coming in. Hi, Kara. Thanks for having me. No problem. So, Brian, what do we know about how this breach happened? Where exactly was the vulnerability? The vulnerability was in a piece of software or software application called Apache Struts. And just like everything else, uh, it has flaws. It's um, code made by humans. And uh, it just so happens that this application is used by a ridiculous number of the Fortune 100 companies out there. And around March 7th, uh, I think it was Cisco came out and said, uh, sounded the alarm, said, looks like hackers are exploiting this vulnerability we didn't know about previously in Apache Struts, and uh, this is bad, so hopefully Apache will have a patch for it, and they did. A day later, (laughs) they came out with a patch for it. Uh, But, you know, at that point, the exploit code that could allow anybody to take advantage of this to break into companies running that software, uh, unpatched versions of it, was already available online. So it was really kind of a race at that point between uh, companies trying to fix their stuff and uh, the bad guys running around seeing how many companies they could pop with this. Um, and at first, we didn't know how long it took Equifax to get around to start 
patching this, but thanks to their disclosure, we now know it took them until somebody told them they had a breach four and a half months later. Wow, so a little slow. <laughs> a little slow. A little bit slow, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so what should they have done to avoid this? You, you talked about the slowness is one thing. I was just talking to some venture capitalists this morning. They were talking about a company, I think it's HackerOne, that helps do bounties for finding things. They didn't do any of this, correct? No, although I'm not real sure that in in in, a, in this case uh, a, a bug bounty program would have helped, right? Or um, anything like what could they have done? So why don't you give us an idea to avoid it? Well, what they could have done was to say, look, uh, do we have any applications here that are that are vulnerable? Yes. Okay. How many? Oh, okay. How many? What are those hooked into? How sensitive is this? Do we need to pull these things offline or do we need to have a stopgap measure in the meantime until we can patch this? I understand, you know, a lot of organizations are reluctant to patch immediately because they essentially have to put everything on hold. Uh, they have to stop their yeah. operations. This is extremely disruptive. Yeah. Um, they could have put, uh, you know, some kind of mitigations in place to, to make sure that uh, in the meantime, th- th- these things couldn't be exploited. Uh, there are a lot of things they could have done. Could have done. Uh, it's pretty it's pretty clear they, they, if they considered any of those options, they didn't act on but it. You either. also reported in May of 2017 that there was actually a prior reach. So they didn't they think there could be a bigger problem if they don't do something about it? I mean, I know this is the tale as old as time, but you know that people don't do this. But you had reported that there had been a prior breach. They weren't, were they just not worried about it? Or was it was a risk assessment or what? Uh, the prior breach was actually unrelated to that incident that got them in the tr- in trouble this time around. But the prior breach was related to the fact that they ran this payroll management system for a ridiculous number of companies. And they, the password for that was a four-digit PIN. And if you're a hacker and you can't you know, br- figure out how to brute force somebody's four-digit PIN, well, you can just go on Equifax's site and answer four multiple guest questions about the person who set up that account. Uh, and then if you answer three or three or four of those right, uh, you can get in. And I've taken these companies, uh, the credit bureaus, including Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion, to a task for their heavy reliance on these so-called knowledge-based authentication questions right. because most people, when they get asked these things, like you've, you've gotten them right, those like, what, what was the last amount of your your mortgage payment or, you know, which of these last, which of these four dresses did you not live mm-hmm. at? Mm-hmm. Half the time people can't remember the answer to these questions. So they go on online services uh, like Zillow and others to find the answers for them. Well, you know, guess what? The bad guys do the same yeah. thing. So yeah. they're not really effective security right. solutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't mean to laugh at the situation before, but when you, when you talk about four, four digit pins and then uh, supported by knowledge based questions, I just tend to think, well, if you're, if you're a hacker and you can't figure that out, then maybe you should quit your day job. But um, okay, so right now, you know, to tell if you want to tell if you've been compromised, uh, you're being told to go to Equifax's site and put in the last six digits of your social and your last name. And then uh, you'll get a sort of a landing page that will tell you, okay, we think you've been compromised. Is there any other way to tell right now, if your information has been exposed? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can tell you that your information has been exposed. You don't need a website to tell you that. Um, but this is something I've been shouting from the rooftops for three or four years now, at least, trying to say, look, 
And I do this. I do quite a bit of public speaking. So um, one of the challenges I, I offer folks is I, I say, look, we have no business using these static identifiers, uh, name, date of birth, social security number, mother's maiden name, address, previous address, phone number, all these things that don't change necessarily about you or that are available in these databases, which have been hacked six ways from Sunday. Mm-hmm. Even if we forget about all the, the times these this data has been hacked, it's broadly available for sale mm-hmm. in the cybercrime underground. And if you doubt me, come up and see me after this talk. Give me your business card and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll look up your stuff. It'll right. cost me like four bucks. So if you buy me a beer, maybe, you know, I'll do it for you. But I guarantee you it's out there. Right. So we should behave as if it's, we're already compromised. Our information is already compromised. We don't need some stupid website from Equifax to tell us yes or no. Because uh, if the answer is no, it's the wrong answer. Right. So people are recommending that the experts make you freeze your credit. Can you explain that? We're going to go through these really quick because we've got so many questions. But what is freeze your credit? And then when are you supposed to unfreeze the credit? And do you have to pay for it? Let, let me ask you. Right. Yeah. So credit freeze is something that was a hard-fought right, uh, one by individual states, one at a time, uh, by passing laws. And it basically just says uh, it allows people to opt out in a way of the credit system in our country. So um, the way that our, our credit system is set up is it's a default Opt in, mm-hmm. um, so you whether or not you want it, a- anybody can look at your credit file, and they can they can just say, hey, I- I'd like to grant this guy credit or this gal credit, and boom, uh, they get to look at your credit file. If you don't want that to happen, um, there are a variety of ways you can do that, but the most uh, complete is a freeze, and that puts you in the driver's seat. So basically, you go, you go to the. Uh, you, unfortunately, there's not one site that you do this at for all the bureaus. You have to go to each individual bureau and do this. And how many um, of those are there? three well there's there's about 40 of them but oh. uh, most of these are are not very big the biggest ones Equifax TransUnion and Experian, uh, Experian thank you are, are the big three and then and Novus is like a distant fourth but they're a reseller of the big three but essentially I, I recommend those four um, and so you, you either call them on the phone you go to the website you say look I want to file a freeze you give them all all the personal information that was compromised in the uh, Equifax breach plus you answer those four knowledge authentication questions and boom they're supposed to freeze your file now what we saw in after the Equifax breach at Equifax and almost every one of the other bureaus was the ability for them to do this for you online completely failed because they were all overwhelmed um, and so you got these messages saying yeah um, come back later or file this online you know follow this through the mail you know send us <laughs> all these copies of your documents and things like that and in fact Experian had done this over and over again they would take your credit card and charge it and then say, uh, we couldn't place the freeze, uh, send the documents in the mail. Yeah. So that, that's essentially how you freeze it. Um, and what happens then is nobody can look at your file. Uh, nobody can grant you credit until you thaw it or lift the freeze. And mm-hmm. generally speaking, that involves just going onto, a, uh, onto the Bureau's website. Uh, the advice is if you say you want to go to a car dealership and take out a loan, Call them a day in advance and say, hey, who do you use for credit checks? And they'll give you one of the three bureaus. Mm -hmm. You go to that bureau, and each of the bureaus, when you file your freeze, will give you a PIN. It's a unique Mm -hmm. uh, personal identification number. You Ideally, you go to their website, you put in that, uh, you enter your information, you put in that PIN, and you tell it how long you want uh, the freeze to thaw for. And then uh, you may or may not be charged a fee for placing the the freeze, and you may or may not be charged a fee for uh, temporary. Or lifting or thawing a freeze or or, t- or completely lifting it. Uh, it depends on the state. And Can you um, freeze for a certain, can you unfreeze for one company, like one car dealership, or is it just unfreeze it and then you refreeze it? 
I know it sounds crazy. You should be able just to do it for one group. You're right? right. The answer to that question gets a little complicated. Uh, some of the websites for the bureaus will let you do that. They'll give you a, uh, a unique identification number that you give to a potential creditor, and mm -hmm. then they're able to use that to, to do the poll. Um, in most cases, however, you, you basically need to go to their website or call them on the phone, give them that pin, and tell them how long you want the freeze to thaw. Mm -hmm. And so they can charge you for placing a, a freeze, they can charge you for thawing it and permanently lifting it. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is really great for consumers, all yeah. of this. Yeah. And what's, what is most frustrating about this is now that in the wake of the, the Equifax breach, what we've seen is when people go to do this to place a freeze, the, the bureaus go, oh, listen, you really don't want that. I mean, I know you said you wanted that, but what you really want is something a little less restrictive. You want to use our credit lock service, which everybody is now starting to conflate with the freeze, but as far as I can tell, they are different things. The bureaus have not been super helpful in, in helping people understand the differences between these two things, uh, but I have some ideas about it. But basically, they're saying, yeah, you want this lock, and uh, it's the same thing as a freeze, except it's a little less restrictive, uh, which in my mind means, uh, you know, trust us. And why should we trust the bureaus to no, do we anything? So, so in that way, the other thing is, should people just be changing passwords constantly or using a password service? I and we're going to get to those questions. In yeah, yeah. I don't think changing a password in response to to this breach makes any sense at all. And in fact, I think you know, changing passwords just just for the sake of doing that on a regular basis is pretty useless as a security precaution. However, if you have you know, if you have something on your computer that says you've got malicious software and it you know it, it detected a Trojan it it has been removed and da da da. I think it's a great time to start changing your passwords uh, if you've got, especially the ones you've stored, if you've stored any in your browser or anything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a terrific time. But in, in response to this breach, no, I don't. I don't see the need to do that at all. You've written uh, in your blog that you're surprised by how few people seem to understand exactly what these companies do, how they work, and you've called it their roles in perpetuating and not actually fighting identity theft. Talk about that. I mean, how do they perpetuate identity theft, and do we even need these types of credit reporting firms? Well, whether we need them or not, they're here for the long haul uh, because mainly the banks, uh, the most powerful lobby in the in the world, uh, depends a great deal on these companies, and the banks don't like change. They change at the pace of you know, global warming, basically. And, and so uh, they're not going to want to do anything to upset the apple cart here. And they're also the biggest contributors to everybody running the country. So I wouldn't expect a whole lot of change as a result of this. But it goes back to what I was trying to say earlier about the default opt out. So you, you in this country, you're, you know, you, your credit is open to anybody who wants to uh, offer you credit. They can, they can do a hard pull on your file. And there isn't a lot you can do about that unless you've placed a freeze or a fraud alert or something like that on your on your file. Um, and the, the other thing to keep in mind is the questions that I've gotten from people in the wake of this breach kind of suggests that we, we have a problem with financial literacy in this country, which is to say this default open system has allowed people to get by without actually understanding how these companies work or how important they are in the role, uh, how important a role they play in their everyday lives when it comes to getting loans, getting insurance, the rates they pay, uh, background checks, the you know whether they get the next job that they're going to have. A lot of this stuff comes 
down to uh, what information is in these reports about consumers. A lot of it is garbage information. There are laws to protect consumers about this, but they have to be aware. Just like, you know, if there's a fraudulent charge on your credit card, you have a right to dispute that and you're, and you're not going to be held responsible for it, but you still have to dispute it, right? right? So this is, so we have to, we have to raise the level of literacy in this country um, and get people to care a little more about taking responsibility for this. So this is part of the reason why people shy away from getting freezes in the first place because they're like, oh man, that, geez, that, yeah. that spending, you know, 24 hours in advance of when I want to open that credit card to, to think in advance to unfreeze it. Oh my gosh, I can't handle that. Oh, what if I'm out and about and I just want to do it? You know, I, I just can't handle that. You know. Yeah, it is. The onus is on. I've had dealt with this a lot. It just it's astonishing the amount of time it takes to do things that should be within your rights to do rather easily. Although you don't want it too easy because you don't want anyone to be able to do it. I mean, it's a real. It's a- uh, not only that, but these upfront freeze fees really do deter people from putting these. Yeah. And it's amazing. People will pay a monthly fee, right, to get their credit monitored, and yet they, they balk at a 4 or $5 fee to pay upfront to freeze because, it, you know, I don't know, it's, it's just the way we are as humans wired. But one thing that's interesting is that I liken this to when people's eyes are opened about social media, right, you know, when they go – Oh man, uh, why why won't these companies do what I want? Why won't they be responsive to me? I've been a you know I've been a customer of Facebook for you know ten years now, and it's like hello, you're not the customer, you're the product. Yes. and it's the same exact thing yeah, with these credit it. bureaus, yeah. right? So they they make money every time they sell access to your report. When you freeze your file. They stop making that money, right? So, and that alone is is the, one of the best reasons for freezing your file. Yeah, right that's there. a fair point. That's a fair point. Like, let them make less money. So, you know, that's we're going to get to read your questions next. But what do you think? Two things: what do you think the fallout will be from this ultimately, and then the future of our identities. And do we need like social security numbers? Is there a thing we could do with a federated identity? Will it all be based on our eyes and our thumbprints or whatever distinguishing DNA we have? What What do you imagine it going? I think there's nothing to stop. Really smart technologists and and maybe a, a whole group, uh, an industry group, to come forward and and you know put forth something that makes a lot more sense, that is more accountable, uh, that is that is more uh, user friendly, that is you know it's easier to use, it's it's a heck of a lot cheaper, it's more distributed, it's more reliable. Uh, you can take it with you if you go live in another country. You know these kinds of things. You know, there's been a lot of talk about oh you know can the blockchain help here? Can we can we get a distributed architecture for this it doesn't rely on these stupid companies and i think the answer is yes are you going to get congress to make that happen no uh i think the industry you know can can innovate uh, around these companies and i hope they will eventually but they're up against some really entrenched entrance interests here uh i.e the banks and i think at the end of the day you know unless they can make it you know super palatable to the to the financial industry in, in a way that you know allows them to realize uh you know profits beyond their wildest imagination in the current system uh, that's not really going to happen so i don't know you know what kind of change we can look forward to you know from a, from an industry perspective as a result of this breach and then from the from a regulatory perspective I'm not holding my breath I really I mean I think we're going to hear you know look the guy, the ex CEO of Equifax is going I just put up a story about this it's going up in front of Congress uh, next week I think four different committees he's got a everybody's going to grandstand and make a big deal about this but at the end of the day I just don't see really much happening in terms of 
the regular yeah the states will sue the heck out of uh, Equifax and they'll get some kind of settlement and I think you know maybe the FTC will try as well um, at the end of the day I don't really think much is going to change all right. So we have a lot of reader questions about Equifax and the hack, and, and Brian's going to answer all of them and help us all out <laughs> of this morass. But first, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, Lauren. Ka-ching, which Thanks. is the sound that I hope you all make when yeah. you spend yeah. a little money and freeze your credit. Yes, and freeze your credit, please do. And meanwhile, we're going to... We're going to use you as a product right now, listeners. Okay, if you're in need of great talent for your business but short on time, you don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. You just need the right tools, smarter tools. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you, it finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash ask. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash ask. One more time to try it for free, the low, low price of free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash ask. All right, we're back with security researcher and journalist uh, Brian Krebs talking about the Equifax hack, which has been just a disaster in so many ways. And now we're going to take some questions from our readers and listeners. Lauren, would you like to read the first question? I would love to. The first question is from Laura Chan at LWKChan on uh, Twitter. Great choice of interviewee, she says first. That's props to you, Brian. What precautions can one take now to protect themselves from the consequences of this breach? Yeah. So I hate to sound like Captain Obvious here, but I mean, there there are a couple of things uh, that get kind of lost in the shuffle. One is, again, what I was trying to say earlier about how you're not liable for stuff that shows up on your credit card statement, but you still have to dispute it. Real important that people take advantage of the offer that's available to them. Uh, at annualcreditreport.com. Uh, this is a, this is the only place mandated by Congress to give you a free copy, and as in free, as in beer, as in free, not as in sign up and you might get it for free. <laughs> um, you, you, you get a copy of your credit report. You can get um, one of these from each of the three major credit bureaus each year. So what I like to do is spread it out on the calendar every uh, every few months. Uh, go get, a, get another one, look at it, uh, review it. Here's another area where uh, we, we could see a heck of a lot more consumer-friendly innovation. I don't know about you guys. The last time I got one of these things, uh, it was like 60 pages long. It was like 10 times worse than reading trying to read a cell phone bill. You know what I mean? It was just half the stuff was written for for creditors or people who are steeped in this industry. I'm not saying they're easy to read or they're fun to read, but you still need to go through there and look for stuff that doesn't belong and then start the process of, of, of disputing those. Uh, people ask a lot about uh, the credit monitoring services. I, look, I, I think the, the, the principal good of these of these monitoring services is that uh, they will alert you when somebody steals your identity they mm-hmm. won't stop somebody from stealing your identity so the thing that they're pretty good at is helping you dispute things that 
that aren't supposed to be on your credit file. Um, and they don't really speed that process up. They just make it a little less painless. Yeah, so uh, you still have to you still have to contact the bureaus and, and dispute these things, and, and they can help with that a little bit. And so people say, well, is it worth it? You know, is it worth uh, paying for this every, every month? I say no. For the most part, these are not, you should not have to pay for these. And in fact, if you're paying attention, there are probably 15 or 20 different companies you've done business with or given your credit card to or have lost your identity uh, that are offering this to you for free. Uh, the only caveat I would say about the, the credit monitoring services is you generally cannot sign up for them once you have already frozen your credit. So if you have uh, if you have the services available to you and you are considering freezing your credit, take advantage of those offers by all means. Don't count on them to block ID thieves from stealing your identity uh, and then freeze your file. So freezing your file, by the way, if you have current things like a mortgage and you freeze your file, will that be a problem or you already have that credit? No, yeah. So, so uh, putting a freeze on your credit file with any of the bureaus does not impact right. any of your current uh, accounts. Right. Okay. Uh, it, and it actually does. It also does nothing to stop fraud on existing accounts that you may have. Right. Uh, really, what it is designed to do is to prevent thieves from opening new lines of credit right. in your name. And it also doesn't do things like stop people from taking out an education loan in your name, which, by the way, is mostly run by the federal government these days. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't stop people from filing, you know, your uh, fraudulent refund uh, request with the IRS in your name. Oh, wow. uh, but but it does stop a lot of this stuff. All right. An email from. Maureen Kelly. I'm not doing a thing about it. Am I stupid, naive, or maybe just don't care? I think all three of those things, Maureen, but go ahead and say so, Brian. <laughs> say what I just thought. Like, okay. I wouldn't say that. Look, honestly, I, I, I get why people feel this way, but I think it's important to remember that, you know, when you throw up your hands and say, well, darn it, this is just too frustrating. You know, I, I don't I don't understand why I should go through all this aggravation if people are going to steal my identity anyway. And, I, you know, I, I'm not sure that that's fair, but, and I, but I, again, I understand why, why people take that that view. I disagree with it. I think uh, as a responsible uh, human being in this country, we need to all be our, uh, our own best stewards of our identity, of our finances, of our future. And you know, is a freeze a perfect solution? Absolutely not. But is it the is it the probably the best thing you can do given the circumstances? Yes. Kara, be nice to our listeners, by the no, way. No, no, <laughs> you should pay attention. Like if you then didn't get stolen from, like it's, you have to pay attention. I'm sorry, this is a digital. But no, you do have to care, and sometimes you have to be a very proactive consumer. Or just live throw up your hands and give up. It's like everything, like climate change, whatever. Yeah, just give up. Give up. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Next question. Well, I'm not giving up with this podcast. I'm going to keep going. Todd Haberlane asks, please describe typically the experiences of people who've had their identity stolen. In other words, what are people possibly facing? I think he wants to know how bad can it get? Yeah, it can get pretty bad. So yeah, the average identity theft victim spends a couple grand out of their own pocket and it takes yeah, several months to several years to straighten out. And sometimes, you know, people end up having to hire lawyers, uh, which of course uh, gets you out of a whole, you know, uh, involves a whole other uh, area of expense and aggravation. I should note that that if you are signed up for these identity theft uh, detection or protection programs, many of them do have the benefit of the, their if you you know if you if you incur these costs they're supposed to reimburse you for stuff as long as you can document it et cetera et cetera. But one thing I want to I want to 
touch on that this question I think comes up against that I think not a lot of people are aware of, and, and we're probably going to hear this when the executives start testifying about this, which is, you know, there's this idea that just because your information is out there uh, and it's got it gotten stolen in a breach, stuff like this, or, you know, somebody's uh, bought it in the underground, that you're going to feel the, the pain from this immediately. You might. I mean, you might in this in this in the form of somebody opening up a new line of uh, uh, a new credit card in your name and then going to going to town on it, right? But increasingly, what we're seeing is uh, the fraudsters are getting a lot better at this stuff. Um, and that what they do is they take your social and they take somebody else's address and they combine these these elements of various identities into a synthetic identity. And the the evil part about the synthetic identity theft is it takes a really long time to for it to come back and haunt the person who owns that social security address, uh, that number. But what happens is the bad guys, incredibly, they'll start It'll find usually go to like a mobile phone store. Uh, they'll get a, a a new mobile phone in that synthetic identity's name. That's enough to establish a credit history for that uh, identity, and they'll pay it off. And they'll keep doing this until they get a high enough credit limit and enough credit that they do what's called a bust out, and they they just go to town on these things. They spend tens of thousands of dollars in that uh, synthetic identity's name, and then you know maybe two, three, four years down the road after that person, uh, person's identity was stolen, the, the fraud collection agencies go, oh, okay, who owns, forget about all that other information, who owns that social security number? And that's who they go after. So, you know, identity theft is one of these really insidious crimes because it, this information has a very, very long shelf life yeah. for the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And it's not something you can easily get a new, you know, number or whatever. So yeah. what's frustrating about breaches like this is, you know, Companies like Experian can come out, uh, Equifax can come out and say, look, we haven't seen anybody been harmed by this. Yep. But you, you can't, you, it's not a one-to-one -one ratio. You can't just say, oh, I, I had identity theft. Uh, it must have been because of Equifax. Right. Just mm -hmm. like, you know, people come to me all the time. I write these stories about companies getting their credit card systems breached. And <laughs> I kid you not, every time I do one of these stories, I get like 10 comments from people saying, I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I had fraud on my card. I knew it. I knew that was the company and because that was the only one I, you know. But the thing is, is that people don't understand. Your card was probably compromised in 10 different places in the last month. Right. Okay. Right. Just because so, you have fraud on it doesn't mean they are the ones that lost it. You know, so, uh, they they may have been they might have lost it, but I guarantee they weren't the only one. No, absolutely. So that's the next question, Marcus McCrory at uh, Triptych. Um, is there anyone left who isn't a victim of the breach? Like you were saying that there's no, you have to just assume you've been breached in your life if you're an adult with a credit card, correct? I think that's the only sane response. And by the way, I'm not just talking about. Uh, consumers, you know, I, this is something I preach uh, when I go talk in front of you know companies, uh, companies and, and technology companies and security companies. Even you know, like I, one of the questions I ask is, raise your hand. How many of you out there think that you know that despite all the money that your and the resources that your employer has thrown at this problem of cybersecurity, how many of you agree with the statement that you guys are already compromised as we speak? And you know, I get maybe five people who raise their hand kind of sheepishly and look around to see if they're bosses looking at them, whatever. But the best response is to, the only sane response is to assume you are compromised. Uh, because only then do you actually, does that provide the impetus for you to take the proper steps uh, to make sure that when the bad guys do get around to abusing that access, it doesn't become a total disaster for you or your organization. All right, next mm -hmm. one, Lauren. 
The next question is from Harshal Chaya. It's two questions. You already answered one, which was, is freezing your credit useful in any way? So we're going to skip that one and just say refer to earlier in the podcast, Harshal. The other question is, what are the agencies doing to prevent a similar breach? Other agencies, like Experian, the others. Yeah, I, I really couldn't tell you. Um, have they said anything? I have. Well, uh, actually, uh, you know what? I shouldn't. Uh, I, I, ca- I cannot speak to what they may be doing to prevent themselves from becoming a victim mm-hmm. of this. One thing I can tell you is that on March 10th or 11th, when you know there were tons of people running around seeing in which websites were vulnerable, mm-hmm. there were lots of people finding vulnerable websites, and the other credit bureaus were among them. They were all using this vulnerable component somewhere in their operations. And so the, the interesting question is, there's a pretty good chance, given that that was the case, that the same people who were mucking around with Equifax's systems actually got into Experian and TransUnion as well. The question is, what other mitigating steps and, and technologies and approaches did they have in place to prevent that from becoming a disaster? So it suggests that perhaps maybe they had better systems in place. Maybe they just uh, you know, were paying closer attention. I don't know. But uh, one thing that the other bureaus have done in response to this breach has been to use it as a marketing opportunity uh, to sell their own credit protection services. Right, I right. think it hadn't it wasn't even like twenty four hours before, you know, Equifax's marketing or uh, experience marketing team was out there, you know, uh, with the hashtag Equifax breach, you know, saying, mm-hmm. hey, you know, come to us. We we actually care about security. God. We can do this right. Sign up with our service, blah blah blah. So, so like you know, people selling electricity in a disaster or something like that. So it's so yeah. appalling. It's a it's appalling experience, it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, next one. Email from Derek Waleko. Uh, does freezing my accounts do any good when the root information needed to unfreeze them is all out there? That's a good point. Yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah. Yeah. So I did a story a couple of weeks, uh, about a week ago, and somebody sent me a link and I clicked it. And, and I, I'm, I do all this clicking, by the way, in a virtual machine. I don't do any of this stuff on my real system. But I was like, oh, my gosh. It, it looks like I can get my freeze pin from Experian just by putting in all the data that was compromised in the Aquifax breach, right? Name, date of birth, mm-hmm. social security number, address. Oh, I think that was it. And then any email address and then answer four of those multiple guest questions. Uh, and then, boom, the site would just display my my freeze pin. So, yeah, I, I suspect the other bureaus pretty much offer the same kind of service. It's really sad. You know, I, I, have, pa- I have pounded on the financial industry, on the credit bureaus to get away from these knowledge-based uh, authentication questions. They totally need to die in a fire already, but it hasn't happened. In Just to, apropos of the the previous question, uh, I, what I meant to, uh, to include was that I've been beating up on Experian for years over these knowledge-based authentication questions. They, they also got hacked several times over the past few years. In 2013, I broke a story about a Vietnamese guy who was operating out of Vietnam. He was running an identity theft service. And he posed as a uh, a private investigator based in the U.S. and he got access to 200 million consumer records maintained by Experian's yeah. uh, subsidiary, and he had the access for nine months. 
And, uh, you know, I, I thought this was a pretty big deal. Uh, the head of government relations for Experian got up in front of Congress and, and said with a straight face, we're not aware of anyone having been harmed by this thieves, uh, you know, uh, access to this data. And meanwhile, you know, you got federal agents running around uh, arresting all of this identity theft service guys, customers, all of whom are running these bust out operations that are doing synthetic identity theft and stuff like this. So. You know, I don't know what to tell you. This is the system that we have. I wish there was a big, fat Band-Aid we could put on top of it. And maybe someday there will be. But, uh, you know, you can't exactly opt out of it completely either. I think the freeze is the closest thing you've got there. All right. Next one, Lauren. Next question is from Eric Polonsky at Polonsky on Twitter. I'm a young professional just out of college. How does this affect me differently than my dad? Should I protect myself differently? Get off the grid, Eric. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Go Jason Bourne. And anyway. run while you still have the opportunity. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I, I guess I would say I, I, I'm not really sure that a young person is any more or less affected by this. I mean, you, you might say... If you know, conventional wisdom might be if I were an identity thief, I might want to go uh, target somebody uh, who's a bit older, Richard. maybe has a, a, a bigger, better, fatter credit line, you know, this kind of stuff. But, you know, I mean, honestly, if I, I would probably just as easily target young people who, who tend not to be as savvy or as involved or invested in their own financial future at that point. You know, one of, one of the things I tend to hear from, from young folks, um, particularly the college age folks is, uh, yeah, well, steal my credit. I don't have anything that they would want. You know, that's the kind of attitude I hear from people who don't understand why somebody would want to hack into their computer. You know, it's like, well, I haven't got anything of value here. And it's like, oh, yeah, really? <laughs> if I were a bad guy, I think I could find a hundred uses for your computer that you obviously don't know about. But uh, I don't know. I, I, I guess I would just say be really judicious about the types of uh, credit offers that you solicit and accept. And uh, try to get in the habit of of being um, uh, being a what the what the credit bureaus like to call a deadbeat, you know, mm. uh, somebody who pays off their bills uh, <laughs> regularly. Uh, you know, uh, we we like to blame our our, our our misfortune on other people, but you know, if you're in the habit of of taking out huge amounts of credit that you can't possibly afford to repay, well, that's that, that's a big, big hole to dig yourself into. It takes a Indeed. long time to dig yourself out. But probably you have to be a baby to start this with no credit issues. <laughs> like, you probably have to do it right from birth, really. Everybody's in the system very quickly, pretty much. Yeah, I would say that's true. So birth. Birth, Eric. Sorry. All right. Email from Jeffrey Snively, who says he tried to sign up for Equifax's monitoring service after the hack, but he had a lot of problems. Registration emails take days to arrive. They don't work when they do arrive. Logon attempts fail, and I have to spend hours on hold when I call customer service line only to make no progress. This sounds like any of many of the different things that could happen. So here's two questions. How much should I trust a monitoring service run by the company responsible for this whole mess? Very good point. What should I tell my congressional delegation to do about this? I'd love to see these groups disappear completely, and that's probably unrealistic. Is there any legislation in the works as a result of the breach? What is it called, and what does it do, especially in the way of consumer protections? Yeah, I think there maybe are a couple of bills. The one I'm familiar with is from uh, Senator Warren, uh, and it would make these uh, prevent the bureaus from charging people uh, for a credit freeze. I'm not aware. I'm not aware of a of a bill that would also prevent 
the bureaus from capitalizing, from profiting off of their own breach, uh, which is exactly what's happening with Equifax. Um, and that's just obscene. And no, I, I would not, um, I would not pay for a service uh, like that. Um, you know, if you could get it, if you could get it for free, which it sounds like uh, you're having trouble, he's having trouble doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might be worthwhile. But um, look, you know, I tweeted this a couple of days ago because I was so disgusted. I, I was doing some research on the stock value of uh, Equifax's stock, and I started noticing all these uh, things pop up in in the feed on Google News, and it said. Uh, uh, there were a couple of different uh, analyst firms that were rating, had changed their uh, analysis of Equifax and I think maybe one or two other bureaus from a hold to a strong buy. And I thought, well, how the hell did that happen? And they, it turns out, I read the story attached to it and they were like, oh, the outlook for uh, these companies selling in, into this breach, you know, all these services that capitalize on people's fear is very strong. Uh, so they saw a huge uh, potential for uh, economic growth for these companies in selling into fear and and whether and, and the fear that they partially created by the way and whether whether that's true or not i don't know but um it is definitely <laughs> i feel your pain it is definitely something that a lot of people are exercised about right now all right next one next one is from sarah camden who asks how can the existing model for determining credit worthiness be disrupted and we had a similar question emailed by a listener named linda who asked can't we just reboot the credit reporting system and if we could what solution would be best if optimized for consumers we talked a little bit about this earlier the need for these kinds of credit reporting firms how can this existing model actually be disrupted yeah that's a really good question um so I think that there's, as I mentioned earlier, there's room for innovation here. There's room for, uh, we've seen we've seen companies like Credit Karma come up and try to compete in this in this way by offering people all kinds of things, uh, you know, quote unquote, for free if they uh, agree to get uh, uh, you know certain offers for things. And and in theory, this is exactly what um, uh, TransUnion and Equifax and Experian are trying to do. They just happen to be in a much big, you know, much more strong arm position vis-a-vis uh, consumers in that you know consumers really don't have a way to opt out right they can opt into something like credit karma but it's hard to opt out of these other companies again i'm not holding my breath that that any of these companies would uh, any of these th- big three would would go away or and i'm not really sure that that's an optimal uh outcome for consumers either really i mean like uh, do we is it are we better off with two credit bureaus rather than three? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, minus any sort of action by Congress that would uh, that would make it um, uh, really difficult for these companies to do business, and I don't expect that uh, to happen. It's one of the most business-friendly Congresses yeah. I can ever remember. Mm-hmm. You know, look, my hope is is in the innovation, uh, and that uh, you know, as in so many other things out there, when we see, uh, we look to the tech, to the tech industry and their innovations, and we think, you know, uh, occasionally there are stories where uh, you know companies that seem like they were at the top of their game completely missed the boat and missed a ton of opportunities and somebody else came and took their lunch away. I think that's probably the most we can hope for uh, in a situation like this. That's probably a yeah. probably a far off 
fantasy. No, the <laughs> system is, that's going to happen in the, the short system term. is built. Like they don't, there's no interest for that. The people that are benefiting from it to take it down, unfortunately. All right, this is a good one, and I think we all feel angry about this. When we're not angry about Roy Price's plane issue, why is Equifax CEO Richard Smith getting ninety million dollars? Wouldn't the board want to stop all additional payments and claw back as much compensation as possible? I thought the whole point of a corporate board was to protect the value of shareholders. But there have been so many counterexamples. Yes. Yes, it's not the Good whole point question. of the board. Good question. Andrew question. W. Um, look, I, I think there's been a bit of misinformation. Uh, I've, I keep seeing this Yahoo story being quoted about a so-called golden parachute mm-hmm. and all this. I'm not saying he's not going to get that. He could. We're talking about Richard Smith. He's one of the most admired CEOs out there. This is a guy that the business business industry absolutely loves. Uh, he's up there with uh, M. Elton, uh, who's the other guys that that you know they write books about and stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and it's not hard to see why. I mean, like he he doubled the company's income over I don't know how many seven or eight years. Uh, really came up with all these. Uh, it was you know led the company when they were coming up with all of these uh, innovations about how to you know additional ways to use the same data that they already had and make money off it, right? So that's innovation. Wall Street uh, rewards companies that do that very well, and they did that very well. And I hope it doesn't sound like I'm defending the company, but I, I really think it's important for people to have the facts as opposed to hyperbole. In this case, um, I believe that the way it stands right now is any kind of compensation he may receive um, still has to be approved by the board, and according, and I looked this up earlier today, according to the SEC filings, um, Mr. Smith is not going to receive his, his annual bonus at the end of this year, and any obligations or benefits that they may owe him under his employment agreement are going to be deferred until after the board completes an independent review of the breach. Now again, that may, you know, that if they may just go, oh, yeah, we got breached, uh, it sucks, too bad, and then they give him, you know, $100 million, I don't know, but this idea of him getting a golden parachute, we haven't seen that yet. All right. Last question, Lauren. Last question is from someone named Walt Mossberg. Oh, him again. Yeah. Did he retire? He's got no, he's got time on his hands. That's really what's going on. <laughs> I kind of love retirement Walt. He just puts it all out there on Twitter now and he sends Big his questions fan. all the time and Walt, we miss you. But he asks, why does Equifax deserve to even exist? And why don't we have laws requiring people's permission to collect and store their data? Again, I think you have to look to the people that uh, we elect to run the country. You know, they're the ones that make the rules. And uh, for better or worse, you know, in this country, the golden rule is he who has the gold makes the rules. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) that's kind of my short answer to that question. All right. Well, so it's not going to happen, Walt. I'm sorry. They're going to run. Not going to happen, in other words, unless there's some consumer revolution or Elizabeth Warren becomes president, I suppose, because that's her big thing, correct? <laughs> yeah, yeah, another another pipe dream. But yeah. I think whether this company deserves to, to be in existence uh, is an open question, but uh, I think they will continue to be yeah. in existence. A lot of people have a hard time believing that. They, you know, they think, oh, this is if this isn't going to make anything change, then nothing's going to make anything change. And, you know, I, I just don't see this company going away, I think. At the end of the day, uh, they're still going to make money uh, when people freeze their credit, and they can continue to do that on their own accord, however long they like. I think they said 
the interim CEO said uh, that they would extend the free, they would waive the, the freeze fees for another few months until the end of January next year, but then they're going to come back again. So, you know, it's hard to say whether their revenue stream's really going to take, take a hit for this. Yeah, they're going to probably owe the states half a billion dollars. They might take a billion dollar fine uh, from the FTC. But, you know, at the end of the day, security is expensive. And it's my opinion that a lot of these companies, uh, regardless of the value of the data they hold, uh, do not believe that they are answerable to the, the, the people who, who actually own that information. Mm-hmm. And um, they will just continue to do business as usual and, and look at uh, these fines and, and other things they may incur for the cost of doing, as a cost of doing business. Yeah. I have one more question for you, Brian, which is you've reported on a lot of hacks and breaches over the years. And I know it might be too soon to put this in the proper context, but where do you sort of rank the Equifax breach compared to other really big hacks we've seen, especially in recent years like Sony and Target? And there's just been so many instances where people's data has been exposed um, by companies and brands that I think people generally think they can trust. Where does this, where does this rank? If we look at it from the lens of how not to do breach response, I think it's the worst breach ever. If we look at it in terms of uh, economic impact, I think the jury's still out on that. You know, I mean, there are certain lessons that we, as you know, as an industry and as a society, take away from mega breaches. Um, you know, in the case of Sony, it was kind of like. Good God, I hope that never happens to us, you know, but that was about it, right? Like that could have happened to anybody. And I don't know if that's true, but um, in this case, I think it's absolutely the worst breach in terms of how the company handled its response to it. Again, I think it's too soon to say what the economic impact of this is. I think for the company, it will be manageable. For consumers, it will be a lot more frustrating. All right. And Congress doesn't look like it's as intense as it should be. It's got a lot on its plate, obviously, and it doesn't seem to be effective at anything at these days. But it's a difficult problem. And again, we really appreciate, Brian, for you coming on. This has been another great episode of Too Embarrassed to Ask. And again, thank you for joining us, Brian. My pleasure. Yes. Thank you so much, Brian. And uh, where can people find your writings if they want to read more about your... Yeah, at KrebsOnSecurity.com and at Brian Krebs, B-R-I-A-N-K-R-E-B-S on Twitter. And if you all enjoyed this week's episode as much as we did, be sure to subscribe to the show and you can leave us a review at iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. All right. But seriously, subscribe. If you do, you'll be the first to listen to new episodes every Friday or catch up on previous episodes where we answer all of the tech questions that our listeners have been too embarrassed to ask. And if you're not on Apple Podcasts, you can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Google Play Music, or really wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you can just go to the website, go to recode.net slash podcast. You can find all of our shows there. And while you're there, you should check out our other podcasts like Recode Decode, Recode Replay, and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. The Verge also has a great podcast called The Verge Cast, and that's hosted by Neelai Patel. Don't forget to tweet your questions ahead of time to at Recode with the hashtag Too Embarrassed or email them to Too Embarrassed at Recode.net. Email them directly to Kara. She reads them all, <laughs> often in the middle of the night when she's not. chasing down scoops mm-hmm. and all the Uber mm-hmm. stuff because no. she's a sparkly vampire. Thank you to everybody for listening. Thanks also to Cadence 13, which is the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor, Chris Basil. And thank you, as always, to our producer, Eric Johnson. We'll be back next week to answer more of the questions that you've been too embarrassed to ask. Keep sending them in. So tune in then. Hi, this is Dan Fromer, editor-in-chief at Recode. I'm here to tell you about a new project we just launched, the Recode 100, and ask for your help. 
We're trying to make a list of the people in the tech and business world who made the biggest impact this year, the winners of 2017. Executives, entrepreneurs, movement starters, designers, whoever, primarily in tech media and commerce, but also some of our new focus areas like transportation, policy, and robotics. We'll unveil the full list and throw a big party for the winners later this year, but for now, we need your nominations. So if you know someone who kicked ass this year or is a rising star in their field, head to recode.net slash submit by Monday, October 16th to nominate someone and for more information. That's recode.net slash submit.